This is the Architecture and Innovation Podcast by Syraclad, featuring one-on-one interviews with designers, contractors, city managers, and civic leaders, as well as thought leaders committed to sustainability, innovation, and solutions that are attractive, affordable, and create healthy living environments. Our podcast illuminates the challenges, breakthroughs, and proven solutions brought to industries, organizations, and our communities. From the office and manufacturer of Syraclad in Redmond, Washington, and on location, this is the Architecture and Innovation Podcast. For our guest today, we're, uh, we're honored and uh, I'm real excited to welcome uh, Cass Calder-Smith, founding principal of Cass Calder-Smith Architecture and Interiors, with offices in both San Francisco and New York City. Cass earned his... Uh, Bachelor and Master's of Architecture from UC Berkeley and has served on the San Francisco Arts Commission for eight years and is currently on the board of the Durasi Residence Artist Program. Design and he designed their award-winning Diane Middlebrook Studios. A native of New York City, he's lived in California since 1972 and now splits his time between both coasts. This is really cool. As a son of an Academy Award-winning filmmaker and a landscape painter and designer. He grew up among both Greenwich Village intellectuals and rural California artisans. He's a, this is cool too. He's a photographer collector and patron to MoMA, SF MoMA and the Whitney Museum of American Art. For more information, feel free to visit his website at costcaldersmith.com. Again, that's cost, C-A-L-D-E-R, smith.com. Cass, welcome and thank you very much for being on the show. We're really honored. Thank you for having me. As they say on NPR. (laughs) Cass, we talked earlier about, you know, we like to ask, you know, a quote or an axiom that you have. And you said you had several. Can you share one for your your audience today? Uh, Yeah, it's not quite a quote, but um, I like to live life with range, which, you know, applies to a few things. One is um, living in a couple of places and in my case new york and san francisco and um and i also think range applies to many things uh in design to make it artful you need usually a large concept or idea and then you need to take it all the way through and support it with details so that's a that's the range i'm talking about there on the same subject of range which is um i can't believe you did this range is what i noticed about your work that mm-hmm. it, there is a range and there's a, a, a timelessness, if you will, to the work as well. It's not just trendy. There's not actually no, no trend. It's just mm-hmm. got a timelessness and it's that broad range of, of range. What, why is that so important to you? Well, I don't know. You know, I think I, I just like it. I enjoy it. But, you know, as architects, we, some of us, you know, we, think we're artists in some form. I think some of us are kind of, you know, are we artisans or craftsmen or true artists? And so years ago, I started like trying to define what really was an artist in anything. And, um, and I was looking at the movie Lawrence of Arabia, which I've seen probably more than 10 times. It's my favorite, but that movie is like a totally work of art. And more than anything, it has the range of bigness to smallness. You know, it's a World War One Middle East story, but the shots that David Lean did are huge. You know, they're cinemascope wide and deserts and all this. But 
then he zooms in and does these really detailed shots. You know, it's like when Lawrence of Arabia, you know, he lights up, puts a match out with his finger. It's like, (laughs) so, so then I'm like, yeah, there's something there. And, you know, and then you think of music, you know, think of the Rolling Stones or U2, these big songs, right? Huge, but down to the details, you know, really fine guitar playing. And so I think, and, you know, it's the same thing with paintings, big, you know, Raft of the Medusa by Jericho. And again, awesome brushwork. So I think that's kind of inherent in anything that's considered art. That's my perception. I don't, I don't know if anybody else agrees with it, but it's the way I see it. That, um, to me, that sounds like a tremendous, a lot of work going on in your imagination to be able to see in such a broad vision and still have a a sense of being grounded. Am Mm -hmm. I incorrect or is there a way uh, to better describe that? Yeah. I mean, I think it's a, maybe a way of being really thorough and responsible that keeps you grounded. And I, and I think, you know, keeping track of the details, even if you have a big idea or not, um, keeps you grounded, detail oriented, watching things carefully. You know, people get a lot of accolades. They're like, yeah, I want that guy. He's detail oriented. People say that about themselves sometimes too, as a way to trump up who they are and what they do. Where where does that come from, Cass? I mean, is it, if you can go back as far as you can, is it is just kind of your the way you're built or your way you're wired? I guess so. I mean, I think I'm wired that way a little bit. I must say, architecture school is very much about that. You know, you you learn that good buildings have really important details, nicely done, proper materials, things like that. And you know, in architects, we're all kind of a little anal retentive in a good way, and looking at the details goes with that yeah you got to walk the talk you can't just have like a bunch of big ideas you got to be thorough and take it all the way through how how much would you account for creativity and discovery or is there one more important than the other do you think they're both as as important to be creative and discovery yeah they're both pretty important you know i think it's good to be sort of you know humble about the creativity and then kind of behaved with the uh, success of it maybe, but uh, they're kind of the same, I would say creativity and discovery. There's, you know, some, it's funny, some projects you find it and some you just don't, Um, you know, we're always trying to look for a concept that's usually tied to the most creativity. And then there's a lot of problems to solve on projects, you know, not bad problems, not like, Oh God, how do I fix the leak? But, um others and so if you can get you know it takes a lot of creativity to solve problems but it also takes a lot of experience and know-how and paranoia but creativity is you know that's the that's the big deal and i think in architecture what's kind of crazy is you have to have creativity on demand (laughs) it's like i need it now you know how do you take that where it's where it is on demand like because it's it I, how do you even shut it off if you can? Well, it's kind of going on and off all the time. I mean, I think, you know, when you have a deadline and you want to create something really unique and interesting, it's like, all right, time to be super smart or, you know, extra creative. Sometimes it's just in meetings, you know, that's, you know, you're rolling out drawings, you're looking at things and you're with other people or clients and it takes a little bit of leadership too, I think. 
so it's a it's a constant thing but then you know you go you know you start doing things that don't rely on creativity like reviewing bills and this and that so it kind of gets turned down or off i do think though and i've told i've spoken to my staff is that as architects we're basically trained to trained to be creative problem solvers and it, you can use it for anything you don't have to use it just to make a nice building you know you can if you take in a creative approach which comes sometimes is getting outside of the box or just thinking like god i know i can do something different here whether it's you know winning an argument or cooking something differently or whatever just i tell people to use it because architects silo things a little bit they're like i'm just going to use my creativity for architecture and then i won't use it for other things i think if they think about it much that uh outside of the box at least in my opinion i think there's got to be a a, a level, high level of fearlessness to do that what's your thought or take on that yeah you do i mean there's a lot of fear that goes on with architecture um and you know it's it's probably project specific some projects you just know let's get out there and it's not as risky and other ones you got to sort of stay in the box it's client types usually um you know clients in general are more conservative than designers which is good so when you're collaborating you know they keep it somewhat grounded and you might try to take it out there and then sometimes it's the reverse some clients are you know really imaginative but um but there's always fears attached you know will it you know be looked at as trendy will i get fired even you know is it is it appropriate? Can I get this through the building department? And usually, a lot of the time, the fear is kind of the practical things. I must say, you know, you got you got a business to run, you got to get paid. If you get too, you know, outside of the box, and a client hates it, you know, they don't want to pay your bill either. How do you gauge? Unfortunately, that? money's tied to everything. <laughs> How do you gauge that client energy? I just made that up. I don't even know there's such a thing, but. Mm -hmm. Just talking in reference to what you said, Cassis, it seems like there is an energy that a client brings, has, or is trying to bring or have. How do you personally gauge or even manage that? Well, you hopefully can do it pretty quickly up front, um, but that's not always the case. Um, so sometimes it's a little bit of an evolution. But you, there's usually a process kind of in the beginning from when you meet a new client to when you write a proposal. But what I think is good is if a client knows themselves, kind of like, you know, a lot of people know themselves, a lot of don't, but if they know themselves, that helps a lot because then they're, you know, you can just understand them a lot. You know, if they know they're conservative, you'll know it too. And then what I try to do is, you know, it's like you got to break the ice to get to know anybody. So I usually try to get them to outline and think about what their aspirations are for a project like god i just want you know a kitchen that gets flooded with morning light or something and that tells you i got to put the kitchen on the east side of the house and then i like it when in parallel they list some really down and dirty requirements i don't really like seeing those lists that much but they're important but some you know some people will say i need six feet of closet pull um you know things like that so that's helpful at a certain point you do need those things and then that creates a, a a conversation that usually works pretty well. This is fascinating. You're listening to the Architecture and Innovation Podcast presented by Cereclad. We're talking today with Cass 
Calder Smith, founding principal of Cass Calder Smith Architecture and Interiors. For more information, feel free to visit their website at CassCalderSmith.com. Again, CassCalderSmith.com. If we go back to, uh, you, you talked about the creativity and discovery, Cass, is, is how about, you know, effectiveness? I know we want to be creative and everything. Does, does that ever enter in like, okay, how can we be, you know, effective with what our clients are expecting, what we know, what we can deliver? Is there ever, does that enter into the conversation or that's just part of the process in that delivery? Is that the effectiveness of what they're looking for and what you can deliver? Yeah, I mean, I think we're very driven to be effective. Um, I mean, you're, depends on projects too that ranges a lot but like on a house which is a very private commission and you know what and the sort of aspirations you know it might be like i want you know i want the outdoors to come in and the indoors to come out so you know you can design to make that very effective um and then restaurants are like i kind of call them public settings and so i do a lot of moves to make them feel public you need sort of your tools, you know, it takes time to be like a, an architect with fluency of how you do things. And I'm, I don't think I'm there yet. Usually the, you know, the real masters have really figured that out. Um, and so they, they know how to drive effect very, very well. And then, you know, but, but it's good to like, you don't always get it all figured out. And so there's always a, enjoy usually projects kind of turn out a little better than you think um which i like yeah i'm sure the clients do as well mm -hmm. touch on that that um why an architect and a designer seems to get better as they get more experience than you know as opposed to say a professional athlete where they're really peaking at you know in their early 20s to very early 30s and then it just the skills just diminish. Whereas a, an architect and designer, it's like, it just kind of gets better and better. Why, yeah. why is that? I would say probably because it's not like physical effort, right? Like your body can, it's going to peak at some young age in, in that regard, like athletes. But I think with architects and like various other people are, you know, painters or musicians, you know, you just, you, you're trying to master your art or craft. And just the more you do it, it's really just repetition. You know, you do it over and over, you know, more and more project types, you know, you start building up your own history. Um, you know, your sort of memory of what worked and didn't. And, uh, you know, you, you just, you're better at it. Um, I'm not sure it's ever any easier. It's really not. We make it about as hard as we want, but, uh, you see some, you know, really masterful work. It's actually funny. You see some of the best work you see from architects is very early in their career and much later. There's something about those first commissions where they knew nothing. Like some of my earliest work might be some of my best. And then you start knowing too much. You're fearful. You get way too practical. And then I'm not quite there yet. I'm only <laughs> 23. But, you know, when I get into my 60s, I think I'll probably be out of the fear mode because I won't care as much. It's just like, what's to lose? And then I'll have all my tools. And you see that. Like, look at Frank Gehry. You know, his work has just gotten better and better. 
um, some of the old masters, Le Corbusier, Mies van der Rohe, same thing. It just got better and better. Also, your 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 commissions sort of might get better too. You get better and better clients. You're seeked out, and uh, a good result for a project is very dependent on a good client. You need to have a good client who understands what the whole thing's about and collaborates well with you. That's an old thing. Ask any architect, and they'll say, "Hard to get a good project without a good client." I like that. And to touch back on that, what you had stated earlier was about music. And you were like, well, how does that have to do with architecture? Well, there, there's a, um, in addition to the creativity and the discovery that we talked about, I think there's also with musicians, I've heard this, and I'm not a musician, but I've heard this from several really great ones, is that um, there's a sense of fearlessness with whatever mm-hmm. and how they play, whether it's an arrangement or the, the way they play their instrument, a fearlessness, which you wouldn't think. Usually fearless is, is again, back to ath- athletics, is like a, a physical attribute, not so much a mental or an emotional. How much do you think f- being f- rather fearless in architecture and design have to do with, uh, you know, feeling like you have a, you're, you're fulfilled on a specific project or projects? Well, I think the best kind of fearlessness, frankly, is that you look back and you realize you were fearless. Because if you're feeling fearful as you're going through it, I think it kind of gets in the way. But if you're just naturally doing things differently and realize, and you don't realize you're crossing the borders of you know, what might instigate fear, like just like really driving too fast on a windy road gets pretty scary. But um, I just think then you look back and you go, God damn, I had no fear. It's kind of like when you look back as having a kid, as being a kid, right? You're just like, wow, you didn't have any fear, but you didn't really know you didn't have any fear. Um, and I think people that are deeply artistic, I think they just naturally do that. Um, I mean, like Bob Dylan is one of my heroes. Like, remember when he went electric? Like that was oh, yeah. a major historical yeah. thing. <laughs> I don't think he was afraid of that at all. And it blew, it, you know, really, really shocked a lot of people. And he was just kind of like, this is what I'm doing. You know, <laughs> I don't think he worried about whether his career would change or people would buy his, his albums. I mean, when they went on tour right around then, they would do half a set acoustic and half electric. They would do acoustic first, and then when they would do the electric, people would like throw trash at them on the stage. <laughs> Whoa! But okay, there. Think about that. I mean, especially if you have a, an ego, from being so revered to all of a sudden being reviled <laughs> um, and not caring. Where do you think you got to not care? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's you, a lot of you know. There's sort of this. I don't know. Maybe this badassery that <laughs> kicks in for some people. They just. Some people just don't care, and they overtly, they don't care. They're, they're, they're fine telling you about it. It's like, I don't give a shit what you think about me. But I think the true version of that, the nice version, is they just don't really know they don't care. They're just on their own plateau and their own magic carpet. Yeah, that ability to not care, which is, is it seems counterintuitive to be like, you, you don't care. But you actually care a heck of a lot. 
at the same time, but you're just not mm-hmm. caring that someone else has to validate you. How much does that play in your work as well? That sure, you, you, you want to meet the expectations or even exceed them of your client, but also there's a, a point of, hey, you know what? This is what I think is going to be best for you, and you may not like to hear this, but I got to tell you, here's what's going to work for you. How often does that happen with you? Yeah, it does happen. You know, I think when you do that, you know, the fear, I don't know if it's like big fear, but there's, you know, concern for your well-being a little bit or your business's well-being that you're, you know, that they might not like what you have to say. It's kind of like the tough love. And, but if they're, you know, good collaborators, they'll be like, look, I, I appreciate somebody being really honest, might disagree, but, um, you know, that's how you build up the trust. I think that the other, you know, side of that one is, you know, you don't want to push it too hard. You know, you don't want to look like too much of an idealist. You gotta, you gotta be careful with that one. You know, it's designers and architects don't have great reputations in that, you know, a lot of people just think they just want to do things for their, their building to get published or, you know, whatever, like we've got our egos that need supporting from a project result. Um, and I wouldn't say that's not true. I, I would say more that what we care about is that our work is relevant to uh, the profession. You know, people see it and they they understand it and they can categorize it in some way that it's relevant. That usually comes from a more academic side to our peers. Our clients, it's a little more like they just like it or they don't or it's medium. It's not so much that is it relevant in like the the realm of architectural thought of the day. Excellent. This is, this is a uh, fascinating. You're listening to the architecture and innovation podcast with Sarah Clad. We're talking today with Cass Calder Smith, founding principal of Cass Calder Smith architecture and interiors. And our acknowledgement today is to the Durasi resident artist program. The uh, Durasi resident artist program is recognized internationally for its preeminence as an artist residency. They strive to provide the best possible residency experience for artists of superior talent from a diverse range of backgrounds and geographical locations. As stewards of a unique and beautiful property, they also seek to preserve the land and use of their facilities wisely and efficiently for maximum benefit to the artists and with the least impact on the environment. For more information, feel free to visit their website at Durasi.org. That's D-J-E-R-A-S-S-I.org. Again, we're talking today with Cass Calder-Smith. Cass, can you share your uh, your experience with the uh, Durasi resident, uh, the program itself? Yeah, glad to. So I used to live near there when I was um, about 10. It's up on Skyline Boulevard in Woodside on the coastal side in the Redwood Forest. It's not like fancy Woodside. Um, it's it's nice, but it's really in the woods. And uh, and we lived on an off-the-grid commune. That's how I got all my qualifications. Huh, wow. Just kidding. Um, it was for a few <laughs> years, strange. and they were neighbors. People like Neil Young was a neighbor, Jurassic resident, the Jurassi, it was Back then, it was the Jurassic Rants. And the, the, the name Jurassi comes from Carl Jurassi, who is known as the inventor slash father of the birth control pill. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. in the 60s and 70s, he became really wealthy, had this 500 acres, then eventually evolved it from a cattle ranch into an artist residency program. And then many, many years later, his wife 
passed away. That's Diane Middlebrook. And he said, you know, we need to expand the program from eight artists at a time to 12. And since Diane was a writer of taught literature at Stanford, she, uh, they had me design the um, Millbrook Studios. And I knew Dale Jarossi, he's a close friend of mine who's Carl's son. And so I was very familiar with the place. I kind of told Dale, I said, I'm designing those. He was like, okay. <laughs> I had to be interviewed by Carl, but it was pretty much a, a given. And they didn't know they wanted four studios. They just wanted to bring in four or five more artists at a time. And so they, you know, they were a great client because they're all about artists. You know, they kind of, they just support them in, in many ways. I mean, artists stay there for a month at a time and they're fed and blah, blah, blah. So um, they were like, well, we think we should put them here. I was like, I agree. And then that was it. I thought about it a lot. You know, I felt like they should be independent, small buildings, not four rooms in one building. And I aimed at, at the ocean and I just, I kind of felt like, like what would make a writer as creative and enjoy their stay there as much as possible? Kind of like if you went there with writer's block, how would you like break it? So, um, and then I felt like they had to be individual. So I lined them all up, but they actually are slightly twisted from each other, like five degrees, two degrees. So theoretically, none of them have the same view, which is, you know, you know, kind of insider information, but you know, yeah. it's very, very slight. And then I covered them all with that large roof that spans over it. And that was my way of kind of collecting them all within one, one roof. So even though they're individual, they're like a community, you know, like kind of like maybe yeah. if houses were lined up on a street. Um, and then, you know, they were just like, great, you know, just don't make them too expensive, <laughs> which I did. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, the engineers made them too expensive. I, <laughs> I like that. <laughs> it it sounds to me like a lot like uh, now I'm getting a, a lot more um, insight uh, uh, from your input, Cass. And like you you design it seems like from the human experience first. Is that wrong or right or like? No, it's right. Correct I mean, it's, me. It's, okay, it's inherent in a lot of the work I do and and many architects. I mean, you think of sort of big ideas like what do these things kind of know what do things mean or what what's the impression to groups and crowds but then you quickly when you start working inside you switch to the experience which is good because you're not really creating an image first you're creating you know design which includes what things look like but it, there's a lot more factors to what the experience is you know what is the view how is the light um what's the space feel like is it tall spacious intimate it all adds up um yeah so those were fun i mean one thing that's cool about that is because you look out at the at the pacific ocean it's many miles away it's like five to ten miles away but it's panoramic and so that horizon line there is just always there unless the fog buries it but there's something really peaceful about seeing that horizon line kind of like the edge of the earth so i felt like that was important to experience Man, I love it. I love this. What would you uh, you like to share today, Cass? With uh, it's your audience um, mm. that we ne we didn't we haven't touched on that you you'd like to uh, to share again. Hmm, that's a good question. Um, I guess. Well, if you're ever a client, um, because client architect collaborations are key. 
really try to understand, figure out who you are as much as possible. If you don't know who you are, fake it. No, I don't know. Um, but like, and come to the table and, and be open and, and push though. Know, architects need to be pushed out of their sort of comfort zone or what they know too. And, and so be an imaginative, you know, on par, um, client and you will see an architect will work really, really hard for you. Um, and they'll, they'll, you know, you'll get much more for your money guaranteed architects work for free. So take advantage of that. <laughs> oh and never God. really, you can trust architects, but one thing that works pretty well, this is probably, I sh probably shouldn't say this, but <laughs> it's not a bad idea to sort of n say no to some early ideas or just kind of go, I don't know about that. Maybe we need to see a few more options. And then, then we go back and we ideate more and we create more. And sometimes we're kind of like, a little bit mad about it. Like, why didn't they like that? That was beautiful. Or it was good. But yeah. every time we go back and do more, it does get better. And you go, God, that wouldn't have happened if that client had just said yes. So push, uh, push back. If I think it's part of the collaboration, but do it nicely. Don't say you jerk. What did you do? You know? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or if that's cool. part of your tactic and you think it'll work. Okay. But be polite. Yeah. Cass, it's been a real honor and pleasure having you on here today. Thank you very much. My pleasure too. Thank you. Thanks for having me. You know that's what they say. Oh yeah. Well, geez, this is this is really um, this is terrific. I really mean that. Our guest today has been Cass Calder Smith, founding principal of Cass Calder Smith Architecture and Interiors, with offices in both San Francisco and New York City. Cass has uh, went to uh, earned his uh, bachelor and master's of architecture at UC Berkeley and served on the San Francisco Arts Commission, as well as currently on the board of the Durasi Residence Artist Program and designed their award-winning Diane Middlebrook Studios. Native of New York City, he's lived in California since 1972 and splits his time between both son. Again, is the, uh, the son of an Academy Award-winning filmmaker and a landscape painter and designer. He grew up among both the Greenwich Village intellectuals and rural California artisans. I love that, it goes back to that range Cass is also a photography collector and patron to MoMA, SF MoMA, and the Whitney Museum of American Art. For more information, feel free to visit his website at CassCaldersmith.com. You've been listening to the Architecture and Innovation Podcast by SiriClap. Our uh, Architecture and Innovation Podcast features one-on-one -on -one interviews with designers, contractors, city managers, and thought leaders committed to sustainability, innovation, and solutions that are attractive and affordable and create a healthy living environment. The podcast also eliminates the challenges, breakthroughs, and proven solutions brought to industries, organizations, and our communities. We look forward to you joining us again next time. I'm Tom Tiaro. Thank you.